If you have a copy of Scripture, I would invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 30 and 31 this morning. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 30 and 31. Be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, Hebrews chapter 11, 30 and 31. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray this morning that it would penetrate our hearts and our lives. Lord, where we need to hear grace, that we would hear grace. Where we need to be encouraged, we'd be encouraged. Where we need to have your word penetrate our hearts and move us into a people that we need to be, I pray that it would do that. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning I want to talk to you about a faith that conquers and saves. A faith that conquers and saves. Now, I don't know how you view your problems. Many of us throughout our days, weeks, months, and years are faced with what we deem problems. But have you ever stopped to think that perhaps your problems are not problems at all, that perhaps your problems are merely opportunities. Someone once said, we are faced with a series of great opportunities that are disguised as problems. Israel had crossed the Jordan. There was nothing that remained before the campaign that would begin to take possession of the land of Canaan. War was hours away. Behind God's people was the flooding Jordan River which kept them from retreat, and in front of them was the huge walls of Jericho. The gates were sealed, the men on the walls ready for a war, and most of Israel had never seen a fortified city before. And we know the people of Israel, as we read through the Old Testament, had a problem with pessimism. No doubt, fear ran through their spines, despite all that God had done for them. Humanly speaking, Joshua was responsible for leading this bunch of frightened, fickled people into battle. Humanly speaking, they were in an impossible situation. If there was ever a problem, this was it. But it was a problem, or was it a problem or an opportunity? I would venture to guess many, if not most of you here, have problems. Maybe it's a sin problem that continues to drag you down. Maybe you promise God over and over again that you will stop, but you keep on failing. Some have problems in their marriage, or problems with their kids. You don't see a solution that's viable. Some of you struggle daily with health problems and personal problems. Others struggle with problems at work and financial problems. Some of you wish you had work so you could have a problem some of you perhaps drifted into the way of the world and have grown spiritually apathetic and you don't even recognize that you have a problem can i be honest with you this morning churches have problems because the church is a collection of all of the problems of the people this was joshua moses had died and joshua had a pile of problems He led them out of their 40-year wandering. He led them across the Jordan River and into the land of promise that was filled with evil, violent giants. And now he has the problem of conquering Jericho. And God gives Joshua the plan. And by faith, the walls of that great fortified city crumble to the ground. What a great account of conquering faith. But it doesn't stop there because inside of that city, was a prostitute. Some would say, big deal. We've seen a conquering faith outside the city, but we see a saving faith from a prostitute inside the city. Rahab had heard about how God had delivered his people from Egypt. 
She had heard that they had defeated two powerful kings across the Jordan River, and she knew that her city was next to fall. She knew that her and her family would perish. It sounds like a huge problem. Or was it? She also knew she needed the God of the Jews to intervene on her behalf. And then the problem became an opportunity. The impossible took place as two spies showed up to lodge at her home. Where she hid them from the authorities. And they promised they would spare her and her family's life if she followed their directions. By faith, Rahab and her family did not perish when the city was destroyed. In these two verses, we have on display a faith that conquers and a faith that saves. In these verses, we see what seem to be problems, but are actually opportunities. So first, let's see this morning, by faith, God conquers enemies. By faith, God conquers enemies. If we look at verse 30, it's made very clear that faith is what brought the walls of Jericho down. Faith is not some sort of mystical, magical little potion that forces God to be at our beck and call and that God just waiting for us to have faith so he can finally do something that's not how faith works but faith does link us to the power of the unseen God who spoke the entire universe into existence faith is the channel that God uses to bring blessings to us as Joshua and the army of Israel marched in to conquer Canaan Jericho was the first major obstacle but God had promised them the land And as Joshua prepared to take Jericho, he sought the Lord's guidance. And God gave him a divine encounter with the captain of the Lord's army. Joshua is out in the dead of the night. He's seeking wisdom from the Lord. And before him stands a warrior in full battle dress. And Joshua asks this, are you for us or our enemies? In other words, Joshua asks this man, whose side are you on? The answer comes back and puts Joshua flat on his face. Neither, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua falls and worships. I believe this is a theophany. In other words, This is an appearance of God in the form of an angelic messenger. I'm not going to get into all the many reasons why I think that. The text bears that out for us. What is crucial or critical is that Joshua is told precisely what to do in that encounter. They are to march silently around the city once a day. And uh, so they're, they're to do that. And with the tabernacle, with seven priests, while seven priests blow on ram's horns, then on the seventh day, they had to circle the city seven times. And when Joshua gave the signal, the priests would blow the ram's horns, and the people would shout, and the walls of the city will crumble. And the Israelites will march right in and take the city. There's no doubt that it is God who conquers the enemy, not Joshua and Israel. There's so many lessons that we can learn from this verse that talks about Jericho falling. Let's look at a few of those. First, followers of Christ have enemies. Followers of Christ have enemies. Remember when Moses led Israel out of Egyptian captivity and across the Red Sea? Pharaoh pursued them. They had an enemy. Just because someone becomes a Christian does not mean that they're going to have no problems. In fact, as we said last week, Sometimes it means that your faith will bring problems into your life. And things that did not even bother you before suddenly bother you now that you have become saved. The reason being that before you are saved, you live for yourself and you care about your pride and your greed and your lust and and all these things that are just all about you all the time. And things that did not bother you suddenly bother you they trouble you when you get saved those sins that you used to do become fortified cities that need to be conquered and they often are so entrenched in your life and your heart it is supremely difficult to do as a follower of christ you have an enemy and that enemy is often your flesh it says i want to do this and it goes against what god would have you do However, not only do we have the enemy within that we are constantly waging war against, but there is an enemy without that previously caused you no problems before. There will be family members 
that do not like the fact that you're a follower of Christ, especially if you try to share the good news with them. There'll be friends that are no longer wanting to be around you as much because perhaps you act differently. People do not like it when you pose a threat to their favorite sins. Perhaps your boss will be upset because you now decide to do things above board. These things will happen to the Christian who truly is a follower of Christ because you are no longer living the corrupt lifestyle that you used to live. As a follower of Christ, you will have enemies. First Peter 4 says this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they may align you. Listen, you will have enemies because you don't live like the rest of the world. At least you're not supposed to. Now, if you are living like the rest of the world, that's a whole other problem. But You're not supposed to live that way. You have enemies because they look at you and say, there's something different. That person is not like me. So you have enemies. Secondly, we learn this, that God's ways are not man's ways to ensure he gets the glory. God's ways are not man's ways to ensure that he gets the glory. Who ever heard of a city being crumbled by marching around it for seven days blowing trumpets? You bring everyone together. Say, all right, guys, here's the plan. I know Jericho is a huge city with these fortified walls, and and these walls are huge, but here is the plan. We're just going to march around it, blowing our trumpets for a week, and the wall's going to fall down. That sounds crazy. God delights in humbling the proud. When Israel gains victory, God gets the glory. The plan is so absurd that there is no one that would step up and go, Oh, I thought of that. That was my plan. Because it makes no sense at all. It's not not a great plan. But it's God's path to victory. And God's path, path to victory is often not our path to victory. No one would have suggested this plan. There's not one leader of the army that would say, Hey, hey, I got a great plan. Let's march around the city. Why did God choose such a strange plan? Because He's showing that to gain victory, it must be because of one's trust in the Lord, not in your own efforts. He gets the glory, not us. Every time they marched around Jericho, it was a reminder that God's ways are not man's ways. This city will be conquered by God's power, not by man's power. This is how God operates. He preserved Moses in a basket. He slew Goliath by a sling and a stone. He preserved Elijah by a widow's handful of flour. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, lived in the wilderness and ate locusts and honey. The Savior was born in a stable and laid in a manger. His disciples were mostly just simple fishermen and they were all ordinary men. The things that meant to esteem us are often an abomination to God because God works in a way that He takes the people that are humble and He exalts them. So He gets the glory. All too often, our problem is not that we are too weak. Our problem is that we're trusting in our own strength to conquer our problems. We do this because we're full of pride. We tend to think that we can take care of whatever problem it is that we have. I can fix it. I can take care of it. If God were to grant us victory, then we would take at least some of the credit. We'd say, well... Well, I did something. I had something to do with that. However, God's plan for victory is through humility. He humbles our pride by putting us in impossible situations 
and by accomplishing the victory in a way that is obviously God's doing and it reveals our weakness and God gets the glory. This is how God works time and time again. You remember Gideon in the Old Testament. He has an army. He's ready to fight the Midianites in Judges chapter 6. He has 32,000 men ready to go against 135,000. But God said, hey, your army's too big. Why? Because if they won, they would brag about it. They'd brag about what they had done. So Gideon sent home 22,000 who were afraid. Now he only had 10,000 against 135,000. But God said, army's still too big. Gideon got his army all the way down to 300 people against 135,000. Therefore, God could grant the victory and get the glory. Paul pleaded with the Lord to take away his thorn in the flesh. But the Lord said that his power is made perfect in our weakness. Allowing Paul to say, when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, God loves to use the humble so he gets the glory. We like to sing a song in church. It's called, Faith is the Victory. You ever sing that song? Faith is the Victory. I'm sure we've sang it here. Faith is the Victory. If Faith is God's means of victory. It means an acknowledgement of our inability to do anything. If you really want victory, you humble yourself because that is what faith does. It says, God, I can't do this. You have to do it. We humble ourselves and exalt God's glory. His ways are not our ways. So that He gets the glory. Thirdly, Faith requires obedience. Faith requires obedience. Faith and obedience cannot be separated. The Lord gave explicit instructions to Joshua. He demanded implicit obedience from Joshua. Faith and obedience go hand in hand, just like unbelief and disobedience go hand in hand. Genuine faith always obeys God. When we lack faith, we will lack obedience. The precise order was soldiers, then seven priests carrying seven ram's horns, called shofars then significantly in the middle the ark of the covenant and on the shoulders of more priests and then people and finally the rear guard of soldiers the conduct of this unusual possession was likewise carefully specified during the first six days they were to march once around the walls each day maintaining absolute silence while the priests blared intermittently on their shofars on the seventh day they were to maintain silence as they circled the walls seven times until joshua gave the command to shout in verse 10 of joshua chapter 4 i think it is now they could have set a great plan about could have said joshua we need something that's more warlike than than this and that would have been lacking in faith and that would have been disobedient listen they obeyed because they had faith that the walls would fall this was not a pretentious belief they had already seen god do so much as they marched they believed the walls would fall and they did fall the evidence of their belief was seen in their obedience Listen, a life of obedience is evidenced by a life of faith to God's word. Since faith requires obedience, I want us to notice two things. First, we must know God's word in order to obey it. If you want to obey the word of God, well, you have to know it. If we are to be obedient, then we must know what God's word says in order to obey it. For Joshua, God visibly showed up. He spoke to him. There are times I wish God would show up and speak to me and say, this is exactly what I want you to do. It doesn't happen that way. It's rare for that to happen for anyone. However, God has spoken to us. And if we remember back to Hebrews chapter 1, we know that He spoke to us in His Son and His words are recorded in the Bible. Now, there are times that it can be difficult to know how the Bible is applied specifically to our lies or to a specific issue however we can't be obedient to the word of god unless we know what it says and how it applies to our problem what god does reveal in his words are clear commands to us and when we live a life of obedience then we are proving that we have faith and when we live a life of disobedience we are proving that we lack faith in god's word 
and we wonder why we aren't blessed. Let me give you some clear examples of knowing God's Word and applying it to your life. You fill out your income tax. You realize that if you list some income that the IRS does not know about, it's going to put you in a higher tax bracket and you won't have money to pay those taxes. So what are you going to do? It's logical to say everyone else does it. And it's obedience to say, no, that's lying. I need to be truthful and trust God to take care of me. Student in school, they need to get a certain grade to get into grad school. They realize on their final that there's no way that they're going to get the grade. But they also realize that the student sitting right next to them, who's a straight-A student, has their test, their final, in a place where they can see it. What does he do? Rationalize and say, look, God's providing. He could do that. Or does he keep his eyes on his own paper, realizing that God will work things out as whatever he wills? Someone has wronged you. Now you have a chance to get even. They're never going to know it's you who did it. You know you can get away with it, and they deserve it. But Jesus says, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What will you do? Are you actually going to pray for a blessing on the one who has wronged you? You see, it is not as hard to know and obey God's will as we make it. Well, it may be hard to obey it, but it's not that hard to know it. However, we must know God's word in order to obey it. You have to know what God's word says and then say, okay, well, this applies to my situation. I shouldn't lie. I shouldn't cheat. I shouldn't get even because God's word tells me not to. We must know God's word in order to obey it. Secondly, knowledge of God's word must lead to obedience. Knowledge of God's word must lead to obedience. Remember, God's, word, God's ways are not man's ways to ensure that God gets the glory. And faith requires obedience. There are times our obedience may look foolish to the world. However, we must be obedient. Moses leading two million people, two million slaves to the Red Sea with no way of escape looked pretty foolish. But he did it in obedience. Moses taking them into the desert seemed like a formula for disaster. But God said... To do it, and he did it. Knowledge of God's will must lead to obedience. The Israelites knew, so they obeyed. Obedience to the commands of God seems strange to the carnal mind, to carnal wisdom. Imagine the apostles when Jesus told them to tell the multitude to sit down as I bless these five small loaves of bread and these two fish. Tell all these thousands of people to sit down as I pray over this stuff. How unreasonable it seems to the multitudes of professing Christians when they are told to cast away their worldly living and rely on God's word and be obedient. Carnal wisdom says, get ahead, lie, cheat, steal, do everything that you have to do. But you have to get ahead. Faith obeys God even if it means financial loss. Carnal wisdom says, everyone sleeps together and lives together before marriage. That is how we know we're compatible. Faith says, I'm going to obey God and I refuse to compromise myself and I refuse to compromise anyone else, even if others are doing it. Knowledge of God's word must lead to obedience in your life. Fourthly, faith waits on God. Faith waits on God. Have you ever bothered to stop and think how time-consuming this plan was? Why did God say, march around Jericho one time, blow your trumpets, and shout, and then the walls will fall? Why, why didn't you just say that? That seemed like an easier plan. Just march around the city, shout, blow your trumpets, walls fall. It would have been faster, easier. Can you imagine walking back to camp thinking that you didn't really do much that day and every day as you walk back because you just marched around the city and the priests blew their trumpets every once in a while and then you'd go back to camp? Well, what a day. Every day was a test of their faith. Did they really believe? Every day they had to wait 
And there was an increase. What do you believe or not believe? Faith waits on God. I love the VeggieTales version of this. The peas are up on the wall. And they're shouting down, mocking the Israelites below. I like to imagine that's probably what happened. People up on the wall shouting down to them. What are you doing down there? Marching around the wall. You think you're going to knock down our cities by marching around? However, they waited on God. They did it God's way. Because that is what faith does. It waits on God instead of taking matters into our own hands. But not only does faith wait on God, but faith waits with expectation. Faith waits with expectation. They believed that God was going to act when they obeyed. We don't know if Joshua told them beforehand what was going to happen. They knew what God had commanded, and they obeyed it. What they knew was that God had given them the land, and so they expected God to come through. And when it came time for them to shout, they shouted expecting the wall to fall. And it did. On the seventh day, they rose early at dawn of day. They marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And the wall fell flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Listen, that is a declaration of faith with expectation. Their shout was the outward expression of their inward confidence in the power of God. Even though faith waits, it waits with expectation. Faith knows that God will act in his power and in his time. And he will do however he pleases and whatever he pleases. But faith trusts in God. And when God's word says it, faith says I can take it to the bank, and I will trust in him. Let us stop and think that while Israel was marching around Jericho that week, something else was going on inside of Jericho. There was a prostitute named Rahab who knew exactly what was going on, and she waited to see what would happen. What would transpire? For the Israelites, we have a faith that conquers. For Rahab, we have a faith that saves. By faith, point number two, by faith, God saves hopeless heathens. By faith, God saves hopeless heathens. If ever there was a picture of God's grace, the account of Rahab is it. Just imagine, we have seen the faith of Enoch and Noah, Abraham and Moses, Abel and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and now... Here we have buried in the midst of all these great names a notorious sinner. We have an alien of a woman who belongs to an accursed race being adopted into the Old Testament church. There is so much that we can learn here. Let's quickly see a few things. First, Rahab was unlikely to be saved. Rahab was unlikely to be saved. What I mean by this is if you were to look at Rahab, you would have written Rahab off. Let me tell you why. First, Rahab was a woman. Second, she is Canaanite woman. And third, she is a Canaanite prostitute woman. Now, interesting, Rahab is the only woman other than Abraham's wife, Sarah, who is mentioned by name in Hebrews chapter 11. Jewish men would pray, Lord, I thank you that you did not make me a Gentile or a woman. And Rahab is both a Gentile and a woman. And God saves her. Not only was she a Gentile woman, but she was a prostitute. Some commentaries try to, try to say that she was just an innkeeper. That she wasn't really a prostitute. You know, try to soften the story a little bit. 
However, both the Hebrew and the Greek words are pretty clear. Rahab was a prostitute. Now, some people wonder why the spies would have gone into a prostitute's house. Naturally, they didn't go in there to sin, and most likely, it was the best hiding place. It would have been open at night, and they would have been accepted without discrimination. However, the real reason they went into Rahab's house was because of the sovereignty of God providentially working to bring about his master plan. That's the real reason. Even though Rahab was unlikely to be saved, God's grace is great. And it reaches down to Rahab. You see, God is not bound by anything other than his own will. And therefore, he will have mercy on whomever he will. And he will harden whomever he wills. Now stop and think about this. Even after her conversion, here in Hebrews, she is referred to as Rahab the prostitute. Which is a display of the grace of God towards sinners. When these spies entered Jericho, they did not know that God had a separate mission. They were on one mission, but God says, oh, but I got another mission going on. They thought they were just spying. That's what spies do, right? They spy. There are times as followers of Christ, we go somewhere to do something for another purpose, but God has a divine appointment for you. You actually think you're going to do one thing. But God has you do something else. God has you there for a specific reason. And very possibly to use you to lead someone, maybe even an unlikely candidate, to salvation. Listen to God's word from Acts chapter 17. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place and they should seek and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him yet he is actually not far from each one of us listen to me christian god has divine appointments for you he has put you where he wants you because he has people that are actually seeking him and he has you engage those people in conversations every appointment that you have is a divine appointment by god do you pray that god would bring people into your life that you would share the gospel with do you get up every morning and you say god put me in someone's path today that i would share the gospel with we can talk about church growth strategies all we want and we can have illustrations and projector things and all kinds of stuff and show you the decline of churches all that we want to show you but you know what will grow a church is two main things i can tell you how to grow Any church and all across the world, there's two things that you need. You know what they are? You need people in your church that will share the gospel with other people that are not in your church. And you need people in your church that will invite other people that are not in your church to come to your church. That's how you grow any church. Those two things. You got those two things, your church will grow. You don't have those two things, your church will not grow. So when somebody comes to me and says, well, pastor, why isn't our church growing? Well, it's easy. We either don't have people that are sharing the gospel, or we don't have people that are inviting. Plain and simple. Wasn't that your job, pastor? Well, I do some of that, but it's not solely my job. And if you think it is, sorry. Go read your scripture. That's how your church will grow. If you're not doing it, your church won't grow. Now, some of you are like, well, I don't want my church to grow. Well, I'm sorry. I do. I want the church to grow because I want to see people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Do you pray that God will bring people into your life every single day that you'll share the gospel with? Rahab was unlikely to be saved. Secondly, Rahab was saved by faith. Israel was to kill everyone in Jericho 
That was the command. Now, I know that's not popular, and people today try to use things like this to prove that God is some sort of moral monster. How could God order the extermination of Canaan? But according to Genesis chapter 15, God had given them 400 years, and then he for 40 years uh, had had the Israelites lost in the desert, and they would have heard how God had delivered Israel from Egypt through the Red Sea, and they would have heard how Israel defeated the Amorites, and for seven days they walked, uh, they marched Israel around Jericho, the city, but nowhere do we see any record of them repenting. However, one person did repent, and that was Rahab. And she was saved. Now Rahab could have certainly complained that it was not fair of God to judge her whole city. She no doubt had lost friends, but Rahab knew she deserved death. She knew that the Lord God of Israel is the God in heaven above and on earth beneath, according to Joshua chapter 2. And though the city was fearful of the impending attack, they were not fearful enough to repent. But Rahab's fear led to faith. It leads her to turn from her sin and believe in God. It was by faith that she did not perish with those who were disobedient. There are many that believe that Rahab had come to faith before the spies arrived, and that, that, that is probably correct. And when God brought the spies, it was a chance for her to be delivered. Rahab had faith in the one true God to save her, and her past life did not disqualify her. God delights to save sinners for his glory. But not only did Rahab have a save, was saved by faith, but Rahab had a sanctifying those who perished were called disobedient in verse 31. They heard of God's power. They heard of who God is, but they refused to submit to God. They thought that their walled city would afford them protection. Rahab, once she placed her faith in Christ, had to make a break from her people, her culture, even her source of income. That could not have been easy. May she, maybe she even wrestled with the decision. But she still made the break. Rahab didn't continue in her prostitution after she expressed her faith. In fact, she would be married. You cannot have faith and live a life of sin. Notice I did not say that you can't have faith and sin. I said you can't have faith and live a life of sin. Any faith that says you can have faith and yet not be holy is a dead faith, a rotten faith, a corrupt faith, and it does not save. Rahab was sanctified. She denied herself. She risked her own life by faith. She renounced everything for God. And when he calls you, will you do the same? You see, self-denying obedience best evidences faith. We're not told whether or not Rahab told others of coming judgment. We have no idea they may have mocked her for staying in her house while Israel marched around the city. For all we know, but what was true then is true today. And that is saving faith makes a break from the evils of the world so that as followers of Christ, we stand out in the eyes of the world. But not only that, Rahab had obedient faith. Not only did she have sanctifying faith, she had obedient faith. The faith of God's people is a living and working faith it is an obedient faith galatians 5 6 says for in christ jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith works through love faith produces some sort of fruit in the life of the believer that fruit is the fruit of obedience if the fruit of obedience does not accompany faith then james says it's a dead faith our faith must produce some sort of works and James, in James chapter 2, verse 25, says that Rahab's, uh, puts Rahab next to Abraham as one who is justified by works. James is not saying that works are meritorious in grounds of us being accepted by God. Rather, works are evidence before others that something has taken place in your life. And those fruits are a demonstration that we are a part of the household of faith. Faith results in good works. For Rahab, it led her to hide the spies and 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 send them away secretly even when she was putting her life at risk furthermore rahab had to obey the explicit instructions the spies gave her in order for her to be saved it may have seemed odd to watch israel march around the city in silence for 13 times maybe 
There was temptation to join with others in Jericho when they were insulting the Israelites. However, Rahab was obedient, and her household was saved. Now, to be certain, Rahab didn't have a perfect obedience in her faith, and neither do we. Let's remember, she was a pagan from a pagan culture. And so when the king's messengers came to her looking for the spies, she was in a difficult situation. So what did she do? She lied. And to be clear, lying is a sin. Even if you lie for a good cause, it's still a sin. If you want to get into theological debate about that later, then we can have that debate. But lying is a sin. But God was gracious to Rahab in her obedient faith. Rahab's lie was an act of faith, and while she possessed a moral conscience, it was not informed by God's word as she was a pagan. I don't say this to say we should go around trying to find right reasons to be sinful, but rather our faith should be obedient and that we should trust in the grace of God when we do fail because his grace covers our sin. After we are saved, God begins to work holiness into our lives. Not only did Rahab have an obedient faith, but Rahab had a faith that impacted her family. We don't know if her family was spiritually saved, although I think it's very probable. We do know they were physically saved, and they became a part of the people of God. Rahab's faith was not just kept for herself, but she desired mercy for her family, and she wanted others to know and have faith. Listen, as sure as your faith is real it will want to bring others in if you say I have faith but I don't want to see anyone else brought in then you don't have faith some people will say they don't want to proselytize how ridiculous is that you have the cure for the disease and you don't want to give the cure away that makes absolutely no sense Jesus said the scribes and the Pharisees that they will travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. That is the problem. False religions are willing not to do or willing to do all that they can to make proselytizing, to make people a part of their religion, while Christians remain silent. By the way, Jesus did not condemn the Pharisees for traveling so far to make a proselyte. He condemns them because he said, and when they become a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. That's pretty strong words. Christians are supposed to proselytize. You are supposed to share your faith. If we say that we believe the gospel is true, but we do not want anyone else to believe it, then we're a liar because we are only proving that we do not really believe that the gospel is true. It is impossible to really believe something without a desire for someone else to believe it as well. This thing I am certain of. It is impossible to claim salvation and have no desire to see other people saved. Unless we desire to see others receive the free gift of salvation that we enjoy, we are either hypocrites or monsters desiring to see others cast into eternal hell. Rahab's faith. Desired for a family to be saved from destruction. God can use the salvation of someone like Rahab to reach a whole family. But God can also use you. You, Christian, to reach your family. He can use you to reach others for Christ. Oh, that we, as followers of Christ, who proclaim salvation, would share the gospel that we so freely say that we have with others who are lost and dying and going to hell. Can you imagine Rahab saying, just save me. I don't care about my family. Just make sure that I'm safe. You can let everybody else in my family die. We would say, how ridiculous is that? Yet as Christians, we practice that every single day. Every day. Save me, Lord. My family's going to hell. Save me. My neighbor's going to hell. Save me. My friend's going to hell. Save me, Lord. As our friends, family, relatives, co-workers, and others we know are dying and going to hell, and we sit there silent. 
You say, oh boy, you're fired up, Pastor. Yeah, I am. Our faith should make a difference, church. We should want to see others come to know Christ as their Savior, just like Rahab wanted to see her family saved. That we would share the good news that we say we possess. Faith. Rahab's faith brought her into covenant with the people of God. Joshua 6.25 tells us that Rahab dwelt in Israel. Rahab went from being a slave of Satan to adoption in the family of God, from being a citizen of a heathen city of Jericho to a place in the congregation of the people of the Lord. James Boyce says that Rahab became more Jewish than many of the Jews by birth because she believed in God and they did not. Matthew Henry says that true believers desire not only to be in covenant with God, but in communion with the people of God. From the genealogy of Matthew, we know that Rahab goes on to marry a prince from Judah, Salmon. And they had a son who they named Boaz, who married Ruth. Ruth and Boaz had a son named Obed, who was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Rahab the harlot became an ancestor of Jesus Christ. From the depths of sin, she is in she becomes saved by the sovereign grace of God and God delivers Rahab and then the sovereign grace of God takes this prostitute to the heights of honor and dignity and puts her in the line of the Messiah this is the reward of faith her faith brought her into covenant and communion with the people of God not only that but Rahab's faith was life changing To think that we place our faith in God and not have a change in our life is preposterous. Rahab was a prostitute. There's nothing glamorous about being a prostitute. It's nasty. It's ugly. Men pay women to use their body. However, they have no regard for the woman as a person. It is a sin against the image bearers of God. There is no retirement package for prostitution. When you get too old to be attractive, you're out of work, lonely, and unloved. Rahab's faith changed her life. God reclaims the lives of the, of the sinners who will turn to him in repentance and faith. The whole human race is guilty of spiritual prostitution. Jesus came from a line of sinners. Everyone in it was a sinner in need of salvation, just like you and I. If we look down at Rahab, we don't understand the doctrine of sin nor the depravity of man, nor the heights of the grace of God. All of us stand just like Rahab in front of a holy God. Only some of us are far worse than she was because she had little knowledge. Yes, she knew she was under God's judgment and in need of redemption. Any life outside of Christ is futile and headed straight for eternal destruction. And any life that God saves by his grace through faith will become fruitful and is headed for eternal destruction. Let me close this up this morning. Faith comes to us in response to the word of God. That is why Roman tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In this, we have an advantage over Rahab. We have an entire Bible to go to. It's not just stories. We have this this Bible that we go to for those who had contact with Jesus Christ. The message we get to hear is not just of judgment, but a message of love and salvation. Additionally, we are surrounded by those people who have surrendered their life to Christ. We have people who will pray for us, and we have people who will counsel with us, and we have people who will reach out to us and help us grow. Rahab had none of that. Jericho stands as a picture of the world opposed to God. You are either on God's side because of your faith in Jesus Christ, and perhaps you have some Jerichos in your life that you need to conquer, or you're comfortably living in your Jericho, thinking that you are safe, but you are not. You are headed straight for destruction. God does not expect perfection. He knows we are weak, and He's patient with us. But He does expect us to act out our faith even if it's a stumbling faith. God expects us to announce our faith to a lost and dying world and to trust in him alone for salvation. You don't announce salvation to people because you're going to save anybody because you're not going to save anyone. You announce it because that's what God's told you to do and he does the saving. 
And you trust in Him alone. He expects you to have a faith that works, whether it's overcoming a besetting sin or confessing Christ as Savior. The key to victory in your life is faith. The key to victory over that sin in your life is faith. The key to victory to finally stepping out and sharing the gospel with that person is faith. The key to overcoming your fears and inviting someone to church is faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in his death on the cross in your place that will deliver you from a coming uh, destruction. If you are already saved, then faith is the power that will give you to conquer the enemy. That threatens to destroy you today, tomorrow, next week, the years to come. You will have plenty of opportunities that come disguised to you as problems. The answer for your life is faith. Faith. God has resourced you to be able to conquer Trust in Him. Are you doing that today? Are you doing that today? Is faith what is evidence in your life? I don't know how God may have spoken to you through His Word today. I'll be standing down front. Maybe you need prayer. Maybe you need to say, Pastor, I need to confess Christ as my Savior. I've never done that. I'll be standing down there. Maybe you want to come and pray and say, God, give me the faith to share the gospel. I'm not sharing the gospel like I should. God, give me the faith to invite others to be a part of this local assembly. I'm not doing that like I should. Whatever it may be, if you want to come and pray, you want to pray to me, I'll be standing down there. You say, well, I'm doing that, Pastor. Maybe you are. But I would challenge you to look around and ask yourself if we are really doing that. Is your faith evidence in your life today? Let's close with prayer.